actually going to take a couple weeks off on our Matthew series. We'll be getting back to that uh, the, the Sunday of Martin Luther King weekend, so in a couple of weeks we'll be jumping back into that. But I don't know that I've ever preached a New Year's sermon. Typically, this is the Sunday where I'm off. I'm typically off two Sundays after Christmas. This year, the preaching schedule just fell a little bit differently, so I get an opportunity to, uh, to do a New Year's sermon. So uh, I'm looking forward to, to sharing some things together with you out of Romans chapter 5 because, you, you know, you kind of ask the question at the beginning of the year, what will the new year bring? And if you've, uh, if you've studied that at all and looked at that, there's a lot of predictions out there, uh, some going way, way back, some recent Forbes magazine, I was looking at that this weekend, uh, they said that probably in 2015 the economy in China is going to stall, and bad news for a lot of you on Sunday morning, coffee prices are going up. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that's what Forbes is predicting. Apparently, there's a shortage of coffee beans around the world. I didn't know about that. Also learned that there's going to be uh, an emerging technology. You know how you got to plug your phone or your, or your iPad in to charge it? There's an emerging technology where you'll be able to charge wirelessly, and that's going to be kind of beginning to come out of 2015. And more people than ever will privately own drones. I'm not sure if that's good news or bad news, but that's what Forbes says. Now, they're kind of Johnny-come-lately, so I checked with Nostradamus, too, to see what he was predicting for 2015, and he's off just a little bit. He said that people would be living to the age of 200, so you, some of you are, are maybe not even halfway there yet, so good for you. Uh, Vesuvius is going to erupt this year, so if you have any travel plans, you want to avoid that area. And he also uh, predicted that all taxes in the Western world would cease to exist in 2015. So there is good news for all of us. I don't know how much of that you can take to the bank today, probably not a whole lot of it. But again, it's just kind of that time of year where we look forward, where we think about what may be coming. Today, this Sunday, right this very Sunday, marks the beginning of my 17th year pastoring at Green Tree Community Church. It also marks a year where we're probably more than likely, uh, Lord willing, going to move into a new building, and that's exciting for us. But we're also saddened by a staff change that we know is coming down the road. Anton Hoffman, this uh, Sunday begins his final six months serving as pastor of care at Green Tree. Uh, and I've also begun thinking about where our next church plant uh, should begin to take some roots and, and some genesis. So a lot of opportunity at the beginning of the year. I think we all realize that we will face challenges and opportunities. There'll be lessons for us to learn and growth opportunities, successes, milestones, joy, celebration. And at the same time, uh, we'll have setbacks. Like any other year, there'll be obstacles that come our way, change that takes place, some that we like, we welcome, we appreciated others, changes that um, we would just rather avoid altogether. Anxiety and hardship, loss, frustration, fear, and even sadness. All of those things make up pretty common elements of our lives. So you see, it really isn't a question whether it's the first Sunday of the year, the last Sunday of the year, or one in between. It really isn't a question of what will happen in this world, we know that there will be positive things that happen. We know that there will be negative things that happen. The more important question, the question we want to wrestle with this morning is, what is the foundation for our lives as we face the opportunities, the joyful times, the times of celebration, as well as those moments of loss or fear or sadness? Does having God in my life make any difference on that level at all. Mary Fairchild is a Christian author. Chip Dimitri sent 
uh, this quote out the other day, and she wrote this. Instead of making New Year's resolution, consider committing to a biblical solution. Instead of making a New Year's resolution, consider committing to a biblical solution. That's what I want to talk about today. What is it? What's a biblical solution for the question of our foundation in life? We're going to look at Romans chapter 5, the first five verses, uh, to dig into that topic a little bit here. The Word of God. Therefore, Paul writes, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, or some of your translations might say, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the reading of God's holy, perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your light to shine into our lives this morning. As we have sung in worship, uh, Lord, you are all we need. And yet we, we know at times that uh, we can sing that. And we can make that our prayer, but we feel very differently. Lord, we, we feel the need for just some of the basic things of life, but also the deeper things, human relationships, love of family members, safe place in which to raise our children, friendships that are deep and abiding. And so, Lord, for us to, to sing that you are all our, that we need doesn't mean that we, that we set these things aside, but rather it speaks of the context of our lives. It speaks of putting first things first. And so, Lord, as we consider this morning uh, looking ahead to the next year and thinking about the foundation of our lives, I pray that your spirit and your word would teach us. I pray that you would show us your truth, that we would rest in it, when times are difficult, we would take confidence in it. And when things are going well, that we would be humbled by it so that we don't take credit for that which we should not. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the joy it is to be here on, on Sundays with them, studying your word, worshiping you. The opportunity we have to do life together throughout the week. And Father, as we face 2015 as a congregation, there's a lot of, lot of changes that are coming, a lot of new things will be happening, some of which are very, very exciting, uh, some of which make us nervous. And so, Lord, it's important that we come to you today for our answers, not to me, not to any man, not to anybody's opinion, but to your truth. So, Father, please forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me give you the sermon and the sentence before we jump into some observations about this text and our foundation for life. Uh, the disciples' foundation, so we're talking about a person who, is, who has come to God in faith through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the definition of a disciple. The disciples' foundation for life in a hostile and an uncertain world is the never-ending friendship of God through Christ Jesus. So our foundation is not assuming that the world is a peaceful place where everybody just gets along and there are no problems. We understand that the world can be hostile. We understand that the world certainly can be uncertain. We, we don't know the future. We don't know 
what you know holds this afternoon, much less what may happen this time next year. So our foundation is not our circumstances. Rather, it's the friendship that God gives us through the Lord Jesus. And this passage paints that picture very, very clearly. I have four observations that should bring those out for us, and we're just going to walk through the passage. The first one is found in the first verse, and our foundation is a foundation of right standing with God. Go back to verse 1 with me for just a moment. Paul has been laying out, and we studied Romans a few years ago. I'm not going to go back and give you a big uh, context lesson this morning, but Paul has been pointing out that through Christ, those of us who are separated from God can have new life in him. So Paul says because of that, because of what Jesus has done for us, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So two things have happened to us that allow us to have this right standing with God. The first is that we've been justified. And again, by by way of review for most of us, justification simply means being made right. Uh, The balances are, are, the scales are balanced. We're no longer God's enemies, but we have become friends of God. We are at peace with God, as Paul goes on to say. That's the second thing. Not only are we justified, but we have a peaceful existence with God. There's no animosity. There's no angst. God isn't looking down at heaven on you if you're one of his disciples and thinking bad thoughts. He's not saying to himself, you know, Joe over there, he's had it pretty good for a while, so I think I'm going to kind of turn the screws on him a little bit and, 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 and make him, you know, go through some pain because I'm just not very happy with him right now. That's not how God operates. We are at peace with God. God loves us unconditionally, and all of this is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So for the disciple, the first thing we have to understand for our foundation of life is that God's made everything right between us, that God has has settled the accounts, and he did that at the cross. He did that through the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the glorification of our Lord Jesus. And so Paul says we have this right standing by faith. What God calls us to is to believe in him, to believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. In John's gospel, Jesus put it this way. Some guys came to Jesus one day and they said, what should we do to be doing the works of God? How do we earn God's love? How do we get on God's right side? How do we get this right standing? Okay, just give us the list so that we can try to accomplish it. And Jesus said the work of God, singularly, the work of God is to believe in the one he sent. So for the disciple this morning, it's enough for us to understand that our foundation, the very fabric of our relationship with God is we are in right standing because Christ has made it right. Jesus has become our peace. The second observation about our foundation in this text is that the foundation on which we stand is a foundation standing in grace Not in works, not in human effort, but in grace. Through him, Paul writes, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Just as, again, maybe a reminder for many of you, but maybe something new for some of you. Grace, it means, by by being objects of God's grace... By standing in grace, this grace in which we now stand, we simply mean that we are recipients of God's unmitigated and unending mercy. God's mercy never changes. It doesn't ebb and flow with your behavior or my behavior. 
if I preach a really, really good sermon one Sunday, I, I don't go home and say, boy, God really loves me today because I got it right. And when I put everybody to sleep the next week, I go, boy, God's really disappointed in me, and he doesn't love me very enough because I did a really bad job. I stand in the grace of God. I stand under God's mercy, which never ends, which never changes, which is uh, completely given freely to me in Christ. It is his gift. And so I stand in this grace. Well, how do you respond when that happens in your life? If you're a disciple of Jesus and you've put your faith in Christ and you've looked in the mirror occasionally and done any soul searching, you ought to have a reaction of joy. You ought to have, you know, I call it the publisher's clearinghouse. You see those commercials where there's a knock on the door and they got the balloons and the gigantic check that says, you know, $5,000 a week for the rest of your life. And the person opens the door and what do they do? They go, oh my gosh, really? Me? I can't believe it. And I think a really cruel joke would be to go, oh, we're one house off, sorry, and go to the next house. Um, but they don't let me do those commercials. But that's when you open the door and the gospel is standing there in the person of Jesus Christ. Your reaction ought not be, well, you know, it's about time because I'm one of the better people around here. Your reaction ought to be when you look in the mirror and go, really? You would love somebody like me? You, you would go to the cross for me? And if that doesn't bring you joy... I'm not really sure what will. And so Paul's reaction is, is we, you know, we stand in this grace and we rejoice. We're filled with joy because of the salvation that God has given us. And therefore, we have hope in what? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the salvation of your soul and my soul and spending eternity with him. And so we look not only at this world and this life with great joy and thanksgiving, but we look to the life to come with confidence and with joy, and we rejoice in that hope knowing that God has written the end of the story, knowing that God is going to get us safely home. That's an appropriate response. When you look at how much God has invested in your salvation, when I look at how much God has invested in my salvation, I know that I can trust him, and it's a response of joy, and it's a response of hope. I'm sure many of you have heard of Ernest Shackleton. He, uh, he made three separate journeys to Antarctica. He was one of the last uh, true explorers charting uncharted areas in our world, and his ultimate goal was to cross Antarctica on foot, to sail to one side and to cross over to the other side and then to, to sail on from there. He made the journey on three different occasions, but the uh, endurance expedition of 1914 to 1917 was the one that he led and the one in which he had the most hope of success and the one that failed the most miserably. Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, got trapped in the ice and ultimately over, over a series of a couple of months ended up being crushed and sunk in the ice, leaving the survivors, the, uh, the 27 crew members, uh, including Shackleton, leaving them abandoned and adrift on, on an iceberg at sea for several months. You have a picture there of, of a group of men and that picture is actually of 22 of the crewmen who they eventually ended up on an island named Elephant Island which was 800 miles by sea from the nearest settlement, the nearest, the nearest point of civilization, and they had no ship. <laughs> and they were stranded, and, and it was winter. And Shackleton took four other crew members, five other crew members and himself, and they got in a small boat about twice the length of our communion table and about four times the width. 
And Shackleton said to the 22 he left behind, I'll be back. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna rescue you. It's going to be okay. And you stop and think about that promise. And you stop and think about having to cross 800 miles of open sea. And you stop to think about all the things that could happen and all the things that could go wrong and, and how those 22 men had to look at Shackleton and say, individually and collectively, I trust you. We trust you. We will wait here. What Jesus is doing in our lives is saying, look at me and ask yourselves a question. Do you think you can trust me? Do you think you can really find joy in your life and peace with God through me? Look at the distance I have come. Look at the expense that I have given in order for you to have eternal life, in order for you to experience salvation. When we look at the grace in which we stand, even though there are moments where we might feel like spiritually or emotionally we're standing on Elephant Island looking at the boat with, with you know, the captain leaving, we understand through the gospel of Jesus Christ that joy and hope are the appropriate response. The foundation is a right standing with God. The foundation is a standing of grace. And thirdly, it is a foundation that welcomes the test. Look at verses 3 and 4. We get into the difficult matter of this particular passage. Paul says more than that. In other words, Paul's saying, you know, we, we, it's natural for us to, to rejoice and to have hope because of, of this grace in which we stand. But there's something even deeper and more profound. What is that, Paul? More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Now, if you just glance at that passage, that, those two verses, verses 3 and 4, and you think about it for just a minute, the, the notion of rejoicing in suffering, it's either naive and, and utterly foolish or it's masochistic. Who rejoices in suffering? This makes no sense. If we're going to understand these verses correctly, we, we need to back up just a little bit. We need to understand a couple of different things. The first is this. If you go back and you study the Gospels, you understand very clearly that Jesus suffered. You understand very clearly that Jesus suffered all the way to the point of giving his life for us on the cross. And the death that he died was a death of sheer and complete suffering. But if you read the Gospels carefully, you also see that Jesus says, I have suffered and if you are my disciple, you'll suffer too. So the first thing we need to remember is that Jesus has not promised us a life without suffering. Jesus has actually promised us a life where suffering is going to play a part where suffering is, is going to be part of the equation. That's the first thing we need to remember so that we're not surprised. So that when the knock comes on the door and it's not the publisher's clearinghouse check, but it's actually the doctor with bad news or it's a, it's a change in our economic situation or it's someone hating us because we're followers of Jesus, we don't go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that something bad would happen and lose our faith. And, and just fall apart spiritually because we are so completely surprised. Jesus has told us very clearly, you're my disciples. I suffered, you'll suffer too. But secondly, we also need to understand the context of suffering. And I'm not going to go there this morning, but Paul alludes to it here in James' first chapter. James talks about what suffering does in our life, and he uses some of the same language here. In other words, it's used by God to build my faith. The suffering in my life, the suffering in your life is not an accident. 
It's not a mistake, and it's not meant for your harm or my harm, but it's actually meant for our good. Because God knows ultimately better than me what I need. He knows I need the removal of immaturity in my life. He knows that I need to lose this tunnel vision I have that focuses only on this life and and what I can get and ignores all of eternity. It's God understanding that the best thing he can do for me, the most loving thing he can do for me and for you is to create Christ-likeness in us, to make us more like Jesus. I remember when I was a young pastor and, and was looking around my world, and I, I'm going back to when I was about 28 years old, and I remember one day sitting there thinking, you know what, I, I don't know anybody that has cancer. I, I don't think I know anybody that's, that's gone through a serious job loss. And I remember just thinking, you know, I'm reading these verses about suffering and, and how to rejoice in suffering and going, I just haven't experienced that. And, the, and this verse just seems very much out of place. It, 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 it seems like really we should rejoice when, when things go well and we have blessings that really make us feel better. But then something kind of odd happened. Basically what happened was 27 years <laughs> of life and ministry. I got older. And it's a verse I have a deeper understanding for today. Because what Paul isn't saying is that the joy is in the pain. Paul's not suggesting that. Paul isn't a spiritual masochist. He's just saying, we, we, you know, we, we should have somebody beat us with lashes, and we should take that pain on as like something that God's giving us. The joy is not in the pain. The joy is in the ultimate production that comes out of the pain. And he lays it out for us very clearly. Suffering has a point. Suffering leads us to endurance. As we suffer and as we go by day by day by day, and God continues to be there with us in the suffering, and God continues to be faithful to us, something happens. We begin to experience endurance. We begin to get a a perspective on life that is more mature and is more balanced. When Shackleton looked at those men and he said, I'm going to rescue you. I will be back. That wasn't his first rodeo, so to speak. Shackleton was on his third trip to Antarctica. He had spent months, probably probably years, actually several years of his life living in Antarctica. He knew those seas. He knew that he needed to get to South Georgia Island in order to come back, and he knew the way, and he had the tools to do it. He had the ability to endure with a proper perspective. And when Paul says we rejoice in these sufferings, he says it's because we know that our suffering leads to endurance, but endurance is not the end of the game. Endurance leads to character, specifically the character of Jesus being developed in our life. As you endure, you begin to find out what's most important. You begin to discover what God really wants to make in your life. And how he really wants to mold you and shape you into the, into the person that he longs for you to be in Christ. And you begin to see those character traits emerge. If you're struggling today with some bad news in your life, something tragic has happened to you. Whether it's something that's happened in your family or a health issue or a business issue. Go find someone who has suffered, who has walked down that same road, but is maybe five years or ten years ahead of you. And they'll be able to give you a perspective that comes from the character that is developed in their life because of what God has done in his faithfulness to them. 
And another uh, quote that, that Chip actually sent me recently is from C.S. Lewis. And Lewis said this, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. I love that statement. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. So as your patience is being tested, as, as your faith is being tested, Lewis is saying as, that, as you pass that test, God is creating within you his character. Endurance leads to character, and where does character find its end goal? It finds its end goal in hope. And not a blind hope, and not a blind faith, but a certain hope. A knowledge that God will see us home. That God will get us to the place of ultimate safety and ultimate glory. If you've ever talked to a friend or a loved one, or you've had this experience, some of you have told me your stories of, of these experiences of, of poor health on some level. Maybe it was cancer or, or some other uh, affliction of some kind. I cannot tell you how many people over the years have said to me, I wouldn't ever want to go through it again, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And you look at somebody who struggled like that physically, and you go, why on earth would you say that? How is that? How is that possible? The response from disciples of Jesus is, and, and I'm going to kind of generalize it, but it's fundamentally the same answer. Because I met God there, and He brought me through, and He showed me His faithfulness, and I know today I can trust Him more than I knew before I had this illness. That's hope in its purest form. Those brothers and sisters who have gone through that experience know how much. They can trust God. And so this is a foundation that welcomes the test, not the pain, but welcomes the test, understanding that what God is doing is creating the image of his son in our lives. Fourth observation of this passage, not only is our foundation right, standing and standing in grace and welcoming the test, but this foundation is a life that is built on a friendship with God. Look at verse 5 with me if you would. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Some people would look at Christians and say, You're, you, you have a fool's hope. You can't see the end game. You've never seen God face to face. You, you're, you're just putting your hope in, in a fairy tale that you really are, are, you know, have no reason to expect it to come true. And yet Paul says, if you put your hope in God, you'll never be put to shame because God's always faithful. God's always true. God always is your perfect friend. He's the one who loves you unconditionally. How do you know that? Because he's poured out his love in our hearts. If you're around Christians for a while, and you're not a believer, you're not a disciple, if you're around disciples for a little while, you're going to find something out that is going to be kind of a head-scratcher for you, and it's this. Christians love people pretty well. Disciples of Jesus know how to love people unconditionally. It doesn't mean that they get it right every time. It doesn't mean that they, that they don't make mistakes. But you won't find a group of people on this earth that, uh, that love people better than disciples of Jesus. And they can't take any credit for it. I can't stand here and say, Green Tree Community Church loves each other well. So it, during our greeting time this morning, let's stand up and pat each other on the back. <laughs> let's just hug each other and say, boy, you're just so super and you're so great. Don't know how you did it, but God bless you. No. God has poured out his love in us. We are recipients of the love of God. And when you pour something into, into the container, 
Sooner or later, if you keep pouring, what's going to happen? It's going to overflow. It has to go someplace. Water always has to find the path of least resistance. It always has to move. It always has to, to, to go. And as the love of God is poured into the lives of the believers, what happens is eventually it overflows, and it flows into other people's lives. And that's God's friendship to us. God loves us enough to give us his love so that we can give it to one another, so that we can share it with a lost and dying world. God's love is poured out, not just so you can keep it to yourself, not so that you can hold on to it and say, well, I'm so glad I'm loved by God. Yeah, start there. That's the right place to start. But the, but the net result then is that it goes into your marriage. It goes into your child rearing. It goes into you being a child of parents. It goes into your workplace. It goes into your friendships. It goes into your Saturday nights, and it goes into your Monday mornings. The love of God flows through the people of God. That's what Green Tree Community Church should be all about. The love of God flowing to us and then through us to others. But he has not only done that, but he's placed his spirit in our lives. He's given us the promise that the spirit of God will live within us in the here and now. Not just in the life to come, but at this very moment for disciples, his spirit is in us. In other words, he doesn't abandon us. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to come back someday and in the meantime you're on your own. It's going to be at least a couple thousand years. We know that much because we're a couple thousand years removed. And good luck. I hope it goes well for you. I'm going to go have a party, and I, you know, I'll get back someday. Jesus says, my spirit's going to abide with you. The comforter's going to come. He's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to lead you into all wisdom. He's going to correct you when you get it wrong. He's going to convict you of your sin. He's going to draw you to the Father, and he's going to empower you for a life of serving others. That's why there's no shame when we hope in God because he is the trustworthy friend who loves us perfectly and gives us his spirit. The challenge that we have this morning, friends, is whether or not we're going to believe that, whether or not we're going to trust him as our friend, our truest friend. Remember, Shackleton made a promise. He said, I'm I'm going to come back. And he left Elephant Island on April the 24th in 1917. And the next time his friends saw him, was on August the 30th of that same year, 128 days later, and somebody took a picture. Now, that's not a very good picture, you know, that somebody clearly was, didn't have their iPhone focused in the right direction, but you can see, you can see Shackleton in the boat offshore, and you can see the, the, the you can't really see it, but the joy, with their hands up, raised, shouting, I'm sure cheering, screaming, think of all the emotions they have, relief, Conviction that they put their trust in the right guy. I mean, it's hard to mention all of the things that went through their minds at that moment. The cool thing about this is that every person in this room who's a disciple of Jesus at some point is going to have that moment. There's going to be a day when you open your eyes and you're not looking at your husband or your wife or your grandkids or whoever, your sick bed or, you know, or whatever. You're going to be looking at Jesus. And that's what you're going to do. Touch now. <laughs> I win. Amen. Hallelujah, right? Okay. Someday that's going to be ours. It's not going to be hope anymore. It's going to be reality. So in the meantime, what are we going to believe? What are we going to trust? Where are we going to build our foundation? I'll tell you what I, what I didn't get for Christmas. I got no guarantees that life was going to be easy or simple or good. I make, I'm making some assumptions about 2015 that may or may not come true. 
Most of my assumptions tend towards the positive side of things. Clearly, there'll be some negatives as well. But I'm, I may end up being 0 for 2015. I may get it completely wrong. But what I know is true is that someday I'll see Jesus. And I know what I, what I did get for Christmas and what I get every day of my life is the friendship of God through Christ Jesus for the foundation of my life. I pray that it's yours as well. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul. I thank you that he was bold through the Spirit to write the truth. That we live in a fallen and broken world. We live in a world that suffers decay, destruction. We live in a world that would seem hopeless, and yet we live in a world that is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he has promised not only to save us in this life, but to grant us life forever. He didn't promise us that it would be easy. In fact, he promised us that suffering would be part of the equation. And yet, he calls us to hope. To put our hope and to put our joy and to put our trust in him as our dear friend. So, Lord Jesus, as we begin uh, what we look at as a new calendar year, I pray that you would do that in our hearts and in our minds. That the foundation of our lives would not be about how much money we have or how secure our job is or whether or not we have health or our, our family's doing okay. Lord, we, we would want those things. But Father, I pray that our ultimate hope and our ultimate foundation would be in knowing that you have saved us by your grace, that you have rescued us, that you're going to come again and, and take us home. And in the meantime, all that happens is for our good, for our growth and our trust in you, for our, our maturity, for our, our looking more like Jesus and less like this broken world. So, Father, may our foundation truly be in your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's a good Sunday to celebrate communion, to be reminded about the foundation of grace on which we stand. So this morning as we, as we start the new year, I want to have an opportunity to come to the Lord's table together and to remember his grace and his mercy to us to remember what he has done, the distance that he traveled, uh, the length to which